Have you been zombified by hunger? Totally. Uh, yes, all the time. And it really affects my behavior, right? If I'm hungry, like even in small scale. So how I about know you? that. Yes. That's why I always keep snacks around. So when you come into my office, <laughs> I can feed them to you. And uh, and then you're, you're really pleasant to be around, actually, if you're fed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so that's what we're talking about today, right? Is people zombified by hunger um, yeah. in a serious well, way. So Yes. Um, Welcome to the Zombified Podcast. We are your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at Arizona State University and brain and food enthusiast. Yes, we love brains and food too, really. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so who are we talking to today? So today we talk to Catherine Townsend, who is an anthropologist who has studied food and famine and how humans respond to famine, not just on an individual level, but also on a societal level. All right. And she's looking at the ick. You, you said she lived with the ick for a while. Yeah. So she lived with um, the ick in Uganda. They're a small group of hunter gatherers who also do a little bit of farming. Um, and they've had a, a really challenging past um, because uh, they had a period of famine. Um, and actually during that period of famine, there was another anthropologist who was there um, who saw their behavior and thought that they were kind of uh like the, their society was just a selfish society because of um, the lack of sharing that was happening. But that was, of course, the case because they had nothing to share. They, you know, there just was not enough to go around. So, um, so Catherine has um, spent time with Ick now um, and uh, has found that they actually are very cooperative and they share it's part of their culture um it's very important to them um and uh that really kind of challenges this way that the it have been portrayed not just in colin turnbull's writing but in um lots of other writings since then like uh, richard dawkins talks about the ick and the selfish gene as an example of like how human culture can um you know lead to like selfishness sometimes and uh, calls them, you know, out as sort of this example of, you know, loveless and unfriendly, uncharitable people. So, so, so it's really sort of a, a fascinating look at how having no food can, can change us. But then also it sounds like it's a little bit of a hopeful thing. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing about this episode is on one hand, it's really depressing, right? Because it's about like what happens to us, you know, as humans, um, if we're starving, if we're truly famished. But it's also, you know, a story about what, you know, that sort of this resilience of humans and human societies um, to come back from these horrible times, you know, when there wasn't enough to feed the elderly and feed children. And so many people died because of lack of food um, that now, you know, several decades later, um, their sharing norms and their, you know, cooperative culture has, you know, completely come back. Um, so, you know, so if we're thinking about like 
post-zombie apocalypse? Can we rebuild society? I think this is a, a, a hopeful example. Well, good. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, so let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Catherine Townsend. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Welcome to Zombified. Let's start by having you introduce yourself in your own words for everybody who's listening. Oh, hello there. Okay. Uh, my name is Catherine Townsend and I'm a social anthropologist and I've been working with hunter-gatherers and former hunter-gatherers in Africa and um, especially focused on uh, issues like social egalitarianism and uh, cooperation. Awesome. And how did yeah. you get into anthropology and in particular studying hunter-gatherers and people in small-scale societies? Oh gosh, Uh, now that's a really interesting question. I think it's because, um, you know, when I was going into doing an an undergraduate course, I didn't, I'd never even heard of anthropology. So, you know, um, I didn't even do my undergraduate in anthropology, but I did it in South Africa in um, English communication and history. And in the history uh, of South Africa, we learned a lot about um, some of the indigenous hunter-gatherers in South Africa and their egalitarian politics. And that was just, a, a, I don't know, an intrinsically interesting kind of subject for me. And yeah, so, I've, what, so I've had a, a kind of interest in that and, since a very early age. And what about the egalitarian politics was interesting to you? Is there an, an example or characteristics um, of the egalitarian politics? I think maybe there was a sort of romantic side of me. I, I'm one of those people that I myself um, have a very egalitarian kind of outlook in life. And, um, you know, people in the modern world, um, there are a lot of hierarchies. So I was just sort of really fascinated by that kind of counterexample, really um, different a different form of cooperation that I hadn't heard so much about. And I, I became really interested from there. Yeah. And yeah. so cooperation is different in communities where there's more egalitarianism. Is that part of it? Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I, w- I would think so. I mean, my interest in cooperation really uh, came out of working uh, within an egalit- formerly egalitarian hunter-gatherer community. So um, for my PhD work, I had worked with the Baka, who are a group of uh, Congo Basin hunter-gatherers. And many um, Baka people are, have now adopted non-hunter-gatherer lifestyles, uh, different subsistence strategies, they've been integrated into the market economy and so on. And this changes the way that they cooperate. Uh, so they, you know, they do less sharing and they do more economic transactions now, for example. Okay. So, so yeah. more keep track of yeah. who owes what. Right, yeah. So, and sharing is, is one of the key elements of what makes a society egalitarian. Because if you're sharing extensively, um, part of that is that it prevents people from accumulating property um, at a different rate to other people. So it kind of keeps 
the the wealth um, in the society kind of evenly distributed so that they have like a low Gini index, for example. Right, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And so recently, more recently, you've worked with the EC as part of the Human Generosity Project. So, That's right. So we've yeah. known each other for <laughs> quite a long time yes. because uh, we worked together mm -hmm. on the Human Generosity Project. And... I was hoping maybe you could say a little bit about the ick and who they are and why they're such a interesting example mm -hmm. um, of hunter-gatherer society. Okay, so yes, uh, the ick. Um, many people who are of my generation, I'm in my forties uh, and older, will um, remember the ick um, because they were quite famous, not just in anthropology but more broadly. And that's because a particular anthropologist, Colin Turnbull, wrote an ethnography based on his fieldwork experience with them in the 1960s. Um, and then he published this ethnography, which became very popular in the 1970s, called The Mountain People. And it became a bestseller, really, and uh, it generated a lot of interest. And in it, he described the Ig people as being really very selfish, uh, loveless, being, um, you know, just people that had a culture where they, um, where the culture didn't allow them to cooperate in the way that other people did. And he saw this as being a kind of degenerative culture. Mm -hmm. So they were, um, you know, really seen as being this group of people that epitomized the kind of selfish side of human nature and, you know, um, some big science, popular science writers have, have kind of um, bought into that story. Right, including Richard Dawkins, right? That's right, yes. Yeah. So in The Selfish Gene, he kind of makes this sort of reference uh, to the ick, and that keeps on getting republished in the same form, even though, you know, really some um, some literature has, has come out in the interim that really indicates that, you know, maybe we you know, should be a bit more critical about those kinds of assessments, um, of X society, including my my own stuff that's coming out, but there has been some other stuff before that. So yes. yeah. So what is the story behind what was going on for the Ick during the period that Colin Turnbull was right. there? So there was something very specific that uh, that happened, and um, it was a very severe famine. So they are living in an environment that is harsh, that is subject to you know, periodic droughts. And in the time, in the in the years that uh, Turnbull happened to come in and, and do his research, he hadn't had a lot of experience with them before and there hadn't been a lot of research done before that time. But there was, it happened to be when there was a particularly severe drought and this led to a, a very severe famine as well. So people were dying at the time. And um, really what was happening was that there was a, a kind of um, societal breakdown. People, you know, were too weak and malnourished uh, to actually function normally as social agents at the time. Right. And that's pretty apparent from actually his own work. It was just his interpretation of it that, you know, was slightly problematic, yeah. or maybe a bit more than slightly. Right. Yeah. So, so they were all essentially starving. Mm -hmm. So it's hard yeah. for people to help take care of each other right. when they can't even yes. feed themselves. Uh, if people within 
a very wide area um, are in find themselves in a position where you know everyone in in that community is equally disadvantaged and they are really struggling then not only is it difficult for them to share because, share and cooperate because they don't have the ener- the energy for that that you don't have enough nourishment but also there isn't anything to share you know it, there's right. there's nothing to transfer they, they, there's nothing they can really do and yeah. because they didn't have good cooperative uh, relationships with neighboring groups either that kind of mm-hmm. compounded the situation and they historically had a a really challenging time even before that right because they mm-hmm. used to migrate and follow herds of animals right so they could hunt more and That's then right. they got more constrained because yes. of political issues yes and Turnbull was aware of this I mean part of the, the kind of uh, research into their former lifestyle was done by him and it's clear that the ick people, although now today they're doing mixed subsistence, so they they have gardens of maize and um, some other crops that they um, do in the wet season, that in the past they relied a lot more on um, a mobile lifestyle um, of hunting and gathering. So really um, this became more restricted due to uh, colonial borders going up, so they're in a um, multi sort of border area where um, they, you know, they live on at the moment on a mountain range um, where you've got Uganda on the one side and you've got Kenya on the other side, and then nearby there's also South Sudan. So traditionally they would have actually moved in a in a, a migration annual pattern um, through all of those countries. But then when the um, colonial situation arose, uh, there started to be borders and enforcement of border kind of uh, things, and they couldn't really do that. And then in addition to that, um, there became more uh, pressure from neighboring pastoralist people like the Turkana and um, the Dodoth in Uganda, who were moving into those territories as well. Uh There was a conservation park that um, was initially created by by the British who um, were the the, the colonial power in Uganda and um, they opened that that park up originally as a kind of hunting area and then when um, Uganda got its independence it became a wildlife park but um, prior to that the Ick had used that as one of their major hunting grounds so that and attacks from neighbors sort of led to them retreating into this mountain range as they, you know, as a more restricted kind of environment. And that environment just didn't have the ability to support as many people. Right. With... So, um, you know, if you're relying a lot on foraging, uh, especially in the dry season, you need a fairly large terrain to be able to make that possible because you need to exploit different resource patches. Right. And and move between them. You know, when one resource patch um, is um, harvestable, you need to move into that resource patch and exploit it. And then when you've exploited all the resources that are seasonal, then you move on to a different resource patch that comes into fruition. So that's, yeah. you know, generally how foragers work. Yeah. So what's your sense of, you know, what, what happens to people in these situations where they are like literally starving, does it change 
like fundamental things about how they're operating. Um, you know, is it like, would you go so far to say that when people are starving, they're zombified to a certain extent? <laughs> yes, well, absolutely, because all you can think of is your belly. Um, that's your primary need. Um, and anything to just to get that energy into your body so that you can continue functioning and continue to survive. Uh, that's going to be your primary aim, of course. So, you know, you, you, you can't focus on the other things that we normally do when we have, when our energetic needs are met. There's just this overriding need to, to get enough nourishment. So, yeah, I think that, that, you know, would be a kind of thing that changes your behavior and changes what you're thinking about and changes your psychology even. Mm -hmm. Um, at the moment that you're, you know, you're having chronic starvation, basically. Right. And we're talking, we're not just talking about, you know, feeling hungry. We're mm -hmm. talking about people who lost so much body fat that they were at the risk of dying. Yes. Right. And so you go into a whole different physiology. When That's right. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think, you know, people have to make very harsh decisions about helping close relatives, sharing food with close relatives, um, and even their children, really, you know, uh, if someone doesn't, and the elderly, if someone doesn't really have a chance of surviving, then is there even any point to sharing with them? You know, mm -hmm. there might have been decisions like that to make. I don't know. I'm, I'm being a bit speculative. But reading into some of the sort of events that Turnbull describes where parents abandoned their children or um, the elderly were kind of left to die of starvation. Um, it might, it may be that, you know, people don't even, if you're really starving, you don't even make those calculations uh, consciously. Right. It's just that you're so focused on your own needs that. Yeah. Yeah. And you literally don't have the bandwidth for anything else. That's right. Yeah. And I, I suspect that that's the case. But, you know, if you were to sort of make those calculations, then perhaps there would be some kind of logic to also, uh, you know, not not uh, putting energy into to people, even if they're closely related to you, if there's not that much chance of those people right. surviving anyway. Yeah. Sort of triage issue, right? Like mm -hmm. in any sort of disaster Contacts like if there's um, medical needs, right? Mm -hmm. And there are people who are likely to die even if you give them a lot of medical care. Yes. And then there are people who are likely to um, have a much bigger change in their ability to survive if you give them medical care, mm -hmm. right? Like there's right. a process by which, you know, even hospitals oh, gosh, and, yes. you know, um, you know, doctors who are, you know, in the field or like in, you know, battlefield medicine, right? There's a whole process for that where, you, you know, if there are limited resources for caring, you have mm -hmm. to make tough make decisions. Some, yeah. Right, right, right. So, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that in, in terms of triage and how medical uh, attention is given to different people in disaster kind of contexts or, or tricky contexts. But yes, exactly. So, there's a sort of logic to it, um, which is, is harsh, but, you know, you have to allocate resources in a way that makes sense, really. Yeah, and sometimes it's not just a matter of 
need, but also mm-hmm. a matter of like the ability of that help to make a difference mm-hmm. for that yeah. person. And I mean, that might be uh, a part of how people calculate need as well in that if the resource supplied isn't really going to make a difference, then you don't have a need for that resource hmm, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, but yeah, in, in terms of zombification, I don't know exactly how that would work. I, you know, I suspect that people just did not have the um, the capacity to even make those those kinds of calculations very clearly in their minds um, that most of what was happening was just a function of people behaving as indiv- more individualistically in that kind of context. Mm-hmm. And if you look at how people behave in, in famine circumstances, you know, cross-culturally, if you look at the great famines in the world and what, what is known uh, historically about those situations that you get that kind of, you get that more individualistic behavior. So, for example... Uh, there's this phenomenon of famine cannibalism, and that's not actually just peculiar to humans either. Other species do it as well. When you know there's a, a lack of nourishment in the environment, then um, people and other kinds of animals will start uh, eating the you know members of their own species, which they wouldn't do in other contexts. Right. So yeah, and it, it could even include you know, organisms or people who are related to you, uh, which doesn't really, you know, wouldn't ordinarily, you know, improve your fitness. But in that context, it's a kind of trade-off that you, you, you have your continued survival. And So there are examples from human famines of... Of, of, of parents even, you know, um, eating their own children and, wow. and so on, yes. And that's yes. presumably something that really only happens when there is such an extreme starvation that... Right, it's life or death, so what do you do? Um, I wouldn't say that that's the most common reaction, but it's Hopefully been... Hopefully not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it has been known to happen, yes. And it's not just yeah. like one isolated case. It's... No, there, there are reports of, you know, quite credible reports of, of that kind of activity happening, kind of criminal underworld of, uh, you know stuff going on in, in specific cases that that happened in, in different places in Europe and in, in Asia. Um, there's there's a lot of kind of work that's been done on those hmm, so, areas. So, yeah. So then if we kind of think about the ick case mm-hmm. in relation to that broader literature mm-hmm. on people's behavior in famines, that really puts it in perspective. It puts it in perspective because actually the ick behavior is relatively mild by comparison. What Turnbull describes is actually relatively mild. So he describes uh, a particular case where an infant was was left and you know was left on it on on its own and was taken by a predator, mm-hmm. and then that predator, I think it was a hyena, uh, was later hunted and consumed by. Um, by the same people, um, you know, the same group of people who that infant belonged to. And that kind of really sparked some revulsion on the part of Turnbull. And I can and I can kind of understand that he must have also been pretty traumatized and, you know, had a sure. lot of emotions to deal with, which affected his interpretation of the scenario. But that was that's the kind of um, 
that was something that caused him to really judge the ick, um, you know, one of the most extreme things that he saw. And I think that that in comparison to actual cannibal, famine cannibal behavior in other um, contexts, it, it really does put it in perspective. So it's actually relatively a, a mild incident, you know. Uh, the the ick people weren't killing each other and, you know, they weren't doing, they, they were never really violent in that way towards just, one another. Yeah. So where do you think the judgmentalism came from on Turnbull's part? Um, well, I think it's always hard as an anthropologist to sort of, you know, um, try and empathize completely. If you empathize too much, then you you really are in a position where it's difficult to continue and, and to do research and to sort of put your research as the priority. So you empathize, but you also sort of try and maintain some kind of methodological objectivity, um, if I can call it that. And I think he was trying to do that and also just trying to remain, to survive himself and, you know, remain fairly comfortable and that led him to to be um i think that the people he was working with really resented him for his behavior and for you know not doing more to maybe help them out at the time so there was a conflict there that may have you know made him defensive in a way about his own behavior um, i don't know it's interesting to think about i can't mm-hmm. i'm projecting because i know fieldwork is hard but who knows exactly what you know, made him interpret things in that way. I think part of it as well is, you know, his theoretical position was that he was expecting everything, all the behavior that he observed to be the outcome of culture and not thinking very clearly about how, you know, human behavior is not just culture. It's not the same thing. There are actually other things that can affect behavior. And so if if there's something very strong that's happening in the, in the environment, then that is going to cause changes in behavior that aren't necessarily the results of culture. And I don't think he thought that through uh, that well either. So there there may be a a combination of um, emotional and theoretical kind of issues that made Mm -hmm. him come to this rather extreme interpretation. And to his, uh, at the end of the book, he kind of advocates for the, the, the Ugandan government to have uh, taken ick society and broken it apart so that this evil uh, culture of selfishness could no longer continue because he saw the culture as being something that was destructive to ick individuals, basically, um, mm. which is a, a very odd position for an anthropologist to be arguing for. Yeah, so despite the fact that they were clearly starving, he was mm-hmm. still attributing the behaviors that he saw to them having a culture of selfishness yes i think definitely you can you know and even when he sort of um i think after he wrote the book he also you know thought about it a little bit more and he even we thought things and he he started to think a little bit more about famine and you know what effects that might have but he didn't let go of that idea ever really that you know um the ick behavior could be explained in terms of culture. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that as well um, was that he didn't really 
he doesn't seem to have really understood a culture or um, yeah, maybe really could... gotten to know the cultural institutions very well or understood, you know, basic things about the language. Yeah, maybe you could say a little bit more about that because that mm-hmm. then ties in with your own work. Because you, right. how long did you spend with them? I, I was there for a year and I've done some sub- subsequent visits. And I have to say the Ik language is a very difficult language to learn and I've struggled with it myself. But it, it's fairly obvious that Turnbull didn't have the knowledge of the language that he pretended to have, actually, which is problematic. And he doesn't seem to have really, you know, tried to understand what kind of cultural institutions people might have had, what words they might have had, which would indicate that they do, in fact, have uh, ideas about generosity and so on. So one of the adages that they have, something that people say all the time, is tomora marang, which means it's good to share. And they have this, I, you know, they have this word tomor, which means to share, and they have connotations about that, which is very much about need-based transfers and about giving to people who are in need when they're in need. And he doesn't seem to have kind of really thought about the fact that those, you know, that word exists in the Ik people's language. And, you know, if they had this culture of selfishness, where did that come from? You know, he thinks that due to the circumstances that they found themselves in, that their culture had adapted to making them more selfish. But I think that's a problematic way of of thinking about things as well. Right. And there are some other aspects of their culture too that speak to yeah yeah so they've got um this belief in um the kijewik they've got a variety of different nature spirits that um are around in the environment and the kijewik in in particular the literal translation of kijewik is children of the earth and they are spirits that kind of hide themselves in 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 places in the forest and in the ground and in wet places as well and they're sometimes visible they can make themselves visible but they're normally invisible but they are sort of omniscient and all-knowing and they they really observe human behavior and they can even observe human thoughts somehow and uh, so when people are stingy and selfish and they're not sharing, those Kijewik know about that and they might punish uh, people by um, bringing misfortune. So, um, you know, people might find themselves not having good luck with their crops or not not being able to find anything in the bush to eat if they haven't shared. And also, you know, um, there's also this sort of idea that the Kijewik in some circumstances might even reward especially generous behavior. And they even, you know, they even are said to sometimes reward generous thoughts or or punish people when they give, but they give resentfully, they, they don't give with the right feeling in their hearts, then the Kijewik don't like that. Mm. So you have to be very careful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this suggests that they actually have a lot of cultural norms and ideas and mm-hmm. um, even, you know, these, uh, I mean, you could almost say that 
the kids a week are part of zombifying people to help each other. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Uh, so um, culture is interesting in that way. Um, it's just not something that can override other factors. So they clearly do have a culture that is designed around helping them to cooperate uh, in various ways, as I think is the case for most human societies, all human societies, actually. And, you know, it's just that that system wasn't working at the time that Turnbull was there. And because he didn't really do longitudinal research, he was kind of, um, he had some blind spots Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, so what happens to sharing, you know, when you go from a situation where, you know, everything's really great Mm -hmm. to then maybe things aren't so great and there's some need to like more need and then to everybody being in need and everybody being in really bad circumstances, you know, like as Mm -hmm. things kind of go from being great to being bad and then worse and then horrible, what happens to sharing? Um, So I think in the beginning, people will sort of realize, oh my goodness, these are hard times. We need to share more actually and operate more and I, I say that I say that yeah because that's how they perceive things so you know I mentioned Tamora Marang which means it's good to share so part of what people tell you about that when you ask them is that the goodness of sharing is not just a moral issue that you're helping your neighbor but that it's good to share because if you don't share with other people then no one's going to share with you when you find yourself in a bad situation So, for example, you know, people might have enough food during the wet season um, and for part of the dry season when they can eat the cultivated foods that they uh, have grown for themselves. But then in the dry season, they have to then fall back on foraging again. So hunting and finding things, uh, finding vegetable foods and collecting honey and so on. And that's more stochastic kind of activity. There's a lot more risk of not being successful, especially in that harsh environment and with the restricted territory and having um, neighboring groups who can be hostile. It's, it's, it's actually a very risky thing for people to have to go out and, and find food in the wild. And so, you know, people might just find themselves with no food. And if their neighbors can help them through that, then they get to survive. And it's, you know, it depends a little bit on skill, but it's also just luck. So people are are pretty much aware that, you know, they have to pull the risk and Mm -hmm. sharing is a way of doing that. So, yeah. But then as things get worse, like they did with Mm -hmm. the situation in what was 1966, right? Yes, 66 to 67, yeah. Yeah, so when it goes from just, you know, some people being in need to everybody being in need to everybody mm-hmm. being in need for a long time right? right so no one can help to buffer anyone else anymore what right. happens then right so it, it seems that you know at, at that stage you have social breakdown um completely and it it does actually take time it it, it has to get to the point that people are actually starving that they they no longer have the energetic ability to um, to, to really put their energy into maintaining social relations. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an anthropologist uh, called Dirks who did a paper about that and kind of did a, a, a cross-cultural comparison of, di- of different kinds, sort of different stages of uh, famine. And that seems to be the case that, you know, it's at that point that things, that the society really breaks down and you get enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the Ica are really interesting case in that you've been able to go back now mm-hmm. and look at how the society is functioning. In addition to sort of talking to people, you've also done some experiments there, right? Well, that's yeah. right. Maybe yes. you talk yeah. a little bit about the experiments, the dictator games. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a dictator game is a very simple economic game, and it's uh, it's just you give a person. Um, a sum of money uh, and you give them the opportunity to either keep it all or allocate a portion of it uh, to another person. Usually anonymous. It's usually anonymous, but they're different forms of dictator games. So they get tweaked in different ways to show different things. And so we took this, uh, this kind of basic um, game and we did just a standard sort of anonymized version where people are just said told that you know they get this amount of money and they get they they can share uh with another person in their community if they choose and or they can keep it all or for they themselves. can keep it all for yeah. themselves or yeah. what have you and then we uh we also devised different versions of the game where we used a bit of framing so we told them that you know, they the the person the anonymous person uh, that they were uh, that they had the opportunity to maybe share with was somebody who was in need. So it could be an old person who was hungry. That was the example that I gave. Yeah. And then we also had another one where we said we we just sort of asked them questions about the Kijewik and. To just sort just of to, to sort of get their minds, their minds just, yeah. just bring it to their minds, really, so that it was fresh mm-hmm. in their yeah. minds that they're thinking about the Kijewik, and, and then played a basic uh, dictator game. Yeah. And you would do it for real, so you would give them the money, yeah, and then give them the money if they said they were going to donate to someone else, and you would actually do that. Yes, yeah. uh, I would, you know, um, allocate the resources according to the decision they made. So yeah. yes, within the community, um, that money would have been. Redistributed. So, yeah. um, and one of the things that doing this let you do is compare the rates of giving in this game mm-hmm. to the rates of giving in other societies, because this game has been used in a lot of different yeah, societies. Yeah. So, so you know, they. Uh, it turns out that um, you know, there's nothing really remarkable about what they are doing. It's very much on the on a par with what people in other societies are doing. Uh, so the they're no more they selfish make. than anybody no, else. And it, it, yeah. it varies a lot between individuals, actually. So you get mm-hmm. people who choose to give nothing, um, but you get, you know, some people who choose to give everything away. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. that's rare, but it does happen. And generally people will give something away, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and how about with the conditions where the person was in need that they were giving mm-hmm. to or the Kiju week were asked about? Yeah, so... Um, it's interesting. So it seems that uh, for the um, the version where a kind of need-based scenario was invoked, that 
this made people a little bit more generous. Um, and the same is true for the version in which the, the Kijewik uh, were mentioned uh, prior to playing the game. But if you take those two things together, so if you mention the Kijewik before playing the game, and then in the game you also specify that the, the, the person, the recipient, is a person in need, that that seems to really have an effect in, in changing uh, people's behavior to make more generous decisions in dictator games, mm-hmm. which is really interesting, actually, because those are that's kind of making this sort of abstract game a little bit more naturalistic. Um, it's, it, it's really kind of um, bringing to people's minds the more sort of cultural information that they would normally use to make decisions about how they share or don't share. Right. And then it's also super interesting going back to Colin Turnbull's, mm-hmm. you know, assuming that they were selfish because of culture, That's, where then when yeah. you bring up the, you know, it's good to share and the Kijuik, which right. are these cultural things that have to do with cooperation, yeah. you get the increase in. Uh, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So like culture is doing exactly the opposite from what Turnbull said. I mean, you, you, there's no ways you're going to convince me that the culture was completely different 60 years ago when uh, he was doing his research, what was different then was that they were starving to death. Yeah, so this suggests then that between the time that they were starving to now, Mm -hmm. there's been either some sort of change in their culture or Mm -hmm. that these aspects of their culture kind of came back, that they were resilient That's right, and, uh, you know, I favor the latter uh, interpretation definitely there's no real empirical way of checking that but that seems logical to me definitely mm-hmm. um you know and also the linguistic evidence is is there that you know the words ex- already existed in the language yeah so it's it's difficult to see how they could have you know developed a culture that was uh directed at making them selfish mm-hmm. and also you don't really need culture to make people selfish in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> that's the sort of default thing you need culture to make people more cooperative mm. yeah yeah and so in a way it's a actually a really encouraging story about the resilience of human cooperation and sharing right because they were in a really bad place. Yeah, they were uh, in an awful, awful kind of uh, situation. And the thing is that there have been subsequent events uh, since that they talk about uh, in the 1980s. Uh, they had a very severe cholera epidemic and and a kind of famine situation, which they also remember as being a, a particularly bad time. During the 1990s, um, they it was a particularly bad time for um, experiencing raids from neighboring uh, groups uh, of the pastoralists who where um, you know the the cattle raiding situation had really uh, gotten out of hand because of the proliferation of uh, weapons um, in the area guns and that was really difficult for them to get through so they've been through a lot of you know, subsequent things. And all through that, they, you know, have have come through this with this um, culture that's clearly oriented towards encouraging people to share and 
not just that, but they do share and, you know, they're nice people and I made friends and friends who I really love. So, and they're not loveless, um, as, as Turnbull claimed. I mean, it's just clearly nonsense yeah. that, you know, that could be true of humans. Um, so, yeah, yeah of, of course it's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. So given what you know of the, the ick and the, resurgence or resilience of these norms of cooperation after all these negative events what do you think would happen in a apocalyptic global situation <laughs> like if you know if there was yeah. something you know on the order of that but happening to everyone in the yeah, world so globally if you had that kind of situation where everybody was really, really in a bad way and, you know, maybe just not getting enough food because there, there wasn't enough in the environment, then, you know, it's that to me is kind of an end game scenario because if you yeah. have total breakdown of cooperation, uh, it would be pretty, it would be the downfall of our species, I think, because, you know, yeah. Without cooperation, what are we as humans? It would be the we would be zombies. Apocalypse. Would be the zombie but we apocalypse. would be the zombies. We would be the zombies, and you know, we would really be competing with each other as individuals just to get food in our bellies. I think so. It really doesn't bear thinking about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we had total environmental breakdown, um, then we might get to the point where we. Just there was just no longer the capacity to actually help each other or to cooperate, mm -hmm. and you know we really want to sort of use the cooperation that we currently have, I think, to prevent that kind of scenario from ever coming about. If we want to continue as a species, um, but I think it would be absolutely abysmal if uh, you know everybody was equally in such a bad way that there could be no need-based transfers from one community to another community. Um, and that it was just each individual for themselves, basically. Right. I mean, I guess yeah. even if it was happening on a global scale, but um, some communities were being hit harder than others and there wasn't helping between communities, you could still have this going on, right? Uh, where, right, right. So you yeah. could have a sort of regional version of it happening yeah, right. in, in, in very large areas, you know, different continents or... Uh, all kinds of scenarios or d different geological zones yeah. um, where, where people are particularly badly hit. Right. And if people from other environments where there were still resources weren't sort of stepping in and doing need-based transfers, then, you know, that would probably lead to really apocalyptic things happening within those zones. Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this actually makes me think about what we're, we're discussing earlier about how the place where you get the most sharing is when some people are in need and not mm -hmm. others. Yes. Um, but if nobody is in need or if everybody is in need, you don't get as much. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's possible we could have a global scenario where in some communities everybody is in need mm. and in other communities nobody is in need yes and there's not much crosstalk between them there's not relationships between them that would facilitate it, the need-based transfers yes. going from one community so, yeah well i think we're already there to be honest uh, in many ways um 
not completely, but I do think that, you, you know, we have a little bit of work to do in helping communities that are hit, hit by hurricanes or who are facing famines, um, you know, really uh, not just immediate aid, but also helping, you know, everybody on this world to be more resilient to environmental shocks and also, you know, uh, helping to avoid, you know, find ways to avoid those shocks happening at all. Right, yeah. It's also interesting to think about your work in this context of what happens in the recovery from the apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. So really horrible event happens. Um, Maybe there's even a complete breakdown of society. Yes. And then what? Do we have a chance at rebuilding society if there's been a societal breakdown? Mm-hmm. Not not if it's, you know, not if there's no way of regaining resources, you know, if conditions don't change. So the thing that, you know, enabled the ick to survive is that the drought had a limited duration. Yeah. So it wasn't actually an apocalypse. It was just a very bad situation that lasted for a very long time and really, you know, pushed them to the brink yeah. of of survival, you know. Um, and people died during this time. And people time. died, yeah. yeah. People died. You know, they did starve to death. And people have died in subsequent really bad times as well. But the droughts always eventually do, you know, the rain eventually comes and uh, the environment is regenerated. If the environment, you know, it's all dependent on the environment, really, that would make an apocalypse uh, come about, really, is is if the environment got to a point where there was just no ways that it could regenerate itself anymore. Uh Uh-huh. And then society would break down... And, and if the rains no didn't come, yeah. there would be no way. Right, for well, it to... you know, for whatever reason um, that that was happening in, in a particular place, um, that the environmental breakdown was happening, that, you know, if there was no chance of that environmental situation improving, then it's difficult to see how uh, there would be any resilience mm-hmm. unless... Other society, you know, other societies, other communities, people where there was a little bit more were able to step in somehow and help. Mm-hmm. But if you know people on a very wide scale, maybe across the whole world, are challenged, you know, if resources are, are short everywhere, um, mm-hmm. then again, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to see how uh, that kind of resilience uh-huh. could come about. So yeah. you know. I'm I'm optimistic that, you know, human cooperation can be extremely resilient and that that happens uh, partially through culture because it's this wonderful tool for cooperating. But at the same time, you know, there there are some sort of question marks in my mind about our capacity Mm -hmm. to sustain things. So for you, a lot of it is this question of is it possible for the environment to bounce back after an apocalypse mm-hmm. so that people's needs can be provided for again? And, and if that can happen, then human culture probably can be resilient in terms oh, of these cooperative yes. norms. But it, 
must be the case that the capacity increases in terms of being able to actually support people and meet their needs. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it you know, cooperation can't really work well, I think, when there, there just isn't enough to support that community or those organisms that are in that environment. Then, right. you know, a, a different kind of thing is, is going to be extremely competitive and even cutthroat and... right nature red in tooth and claw and so on um yeah. yeah but that's really the scenario that happens when there's famine and starvation that's when people are so zombified by literally their hunger but, yeah, right that yeah, yeah this ability to maintain the cultural norms mm -hmm. about sharing can yes break down. yes i think so and even you know more basic things like you know parent Child relationships uh, are don't even really seem to necessarily uh, yeah. work as they normally would in a in a, a situation where ordinary so in an apocalyptic situation you can't even necessarily expect those uh, more basic uh, ties of cooperation that we all take for granted to survive. Yeah, it's very scary. Yeah, you yeah. know, one of a previous guests that we've talked to, Emily Zarka, she mm -hmm. studies monsters like she's literally <laughs> she's you know yeah. um has a um phd in um literature and got she's interested in gothic literature but also just monsters in general and she says that very often monsters what they are um are really a metaphor for human behavior mm, in yes. times of challenge mm. and that you know if you look at a lot of the monster movies and zombie movies yeah. that really... Those are the tropes that people are kind of using to examine those issues that are, are maybe ex kind of existential issues that are on our minds and that we think about. Yeah, I think I'll buy that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you think about the Black Death and so on, um, I think... I, I I seem to recall watching a documentary on the BBC that belief in um, vampires mm -hmm. originates from that era. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I should look into her work definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, I think it's you know it's it's interesting to also just think about when when is the zombie not the outgroup, but actually like the reflection of the behavior of those who we think are like us, mm. but in situations where there are challenges, you know, right. when and we become zombified, <laughs> exactly when we're zombified. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Catherine, thank you mm. so oh, much for sharing your brains <laughs> with all of us this episode. Okay. Thanks. Thanks everyone. And if the whole world says that we're crazy,
Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And we would like to thank everyone who helps make Zombified possible, including the psychology department here at ASU. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Including the ethics of eating and not... That's actually probably, yes, accurate. Not, right? not eating other people. <laughs> yes. I think that's part of ethics. So. Yes. <laughs> and all the brains that help make this podcast. Including Tal Ram, who does our fabulous sound. Neil Smith, who makes us all look like zombies. Yeah, Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological, which I have to say I'm totally zombified by still. I love that song. It's infectious, like yes. a plague. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and everyone on the Z team uh, who does transcribing and social media and comes up with lots of ideas that are super useful. So. Yeah, thank you, Z Team. And if you want to join our uh, virtual Z Team, you can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on um, Facebook, on TikTok, and right. see all of the cool things that our Z Team is making, including like, you know, videos about their transformations during the zombie apocalypse. So be sure to share all those things with your friends because, you know, that's part of what makes society great. Is sharing <laughs> so. on social media. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you can find out more about us at um, zombified.org and find links to our social media and also to our uh, other project, Channel Z, which is a video channel um, with all sorts of fun shows. Uh, some of them are hosted by me and Dave, uh, and we have a, a bunch of other really amazing people helping to make um content that is uh it's i mean really what it is it's tv for the zombie apocalypse yeah it's super fun it's super educational and uh it's like you won't even realize that you're learning though because you're, you're just like oh what like you know should i be eating brains or not like you know yeah. you need to know the answer to that question or or like you know how do you deal with a zombie bite like i mean yeah. these are just important things for you to know if you want to survive yeah. Yeah, you won't even realize you learned them till after you've been bitten, and you'll be like, "Oh, look at this!" So exactly. <laughs> now that I've been bitten, I know how to eat brains. So <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, you can be prepared for the zombie apocalypse, whatever your role is in it. Yes, exactly. So, um, and uh, the one other thing you need to be prepared is coffee mugs and t-shirts, and so that's right. Yes, buy them uh, from us. So. You can get merch for, you know, our, our Zombified podcast for any of our shows on Channel Z um, and, you know, sport your zombie apocalypse pride. So Yeah. Even if you've already bought a T-shirt, you should buy more. The new hip thing is to wear 10 T-shirts at once. So <laughs> I'll take your word for that one, Dave. <laughs> well, this was a really interesting episode to do. And I think, you know, gave me a lot of food for thought, you could say. Yeah, I think so. And uh I want to thank everybody out there for sharing their time with us, you know, um, and sharing their brains with each other. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. You know. so. Great. And thank you all, yes, for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something
Something supernatural with you 